bow before the Lord because we're always in his presence and there are some people who need to feel that presence right now uh, as this disease spreads and as it touches closer and closer to us and to our homes and our families and people that we love as we think about the other things that people are going through the normal things that go through life didn't get suspended because of COVID-19 and we want to pray for one another so let's do that Father, we bow in your presence now because we think about all of the things that are going on that we can't really explain, we can't really understand. We're sometimes confused by the information that we get. We don't know who to believe. And we think, Lord, about uh, all of the stuff that goes on politically. We think about the stuff that goes on that's just sin and depravity that's just normal we think about uh, people that are suffering because of these things people that are sick we want to pray for them people that are having to deal with aging and dementia things like that people that are going through surgeries people that are recovering from surgeries now we think about people that may have marital problems we think about people with rebellious children we think about people that are concerned about their jobs, concerned about the economy, concerned about maybe even retirement, things like that. We could go on and on and on. But, oh, Lord God, we thank you that we don't have to name all of them because you know all of them. And you know each and every person, each and every situation. And what we're asking, Lord, is for your power and for your peace, for your grace and your mercy to touch lives to reassure people of your love, to draw people to salvation in Jesus Christ, and to exalt yourself in our hearts. And we pray that our life would reflect that. We pray that our feelings and emotions would reflect that as we rest in you. May the peace that passes understanding rest upon your children today in these troubled times. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, who is our peace. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and uh, let's turn to the book of Exodus. And we're going to go to chapter 8. And uh, we're going to look at the first 19 verses. We're actually going to cover a couple of plagues this morning. We've uh, looked a couple of weeks ago at the Nile turning to blood. Uh, what a mess that must have been. Can you even begin to imagine? And uh, now it's going to uh, continue on. Pharaoh with his hard heart. And uh, all of the uh, things that are going on here where the Lord is saying, I am going to show my power. And uh, this uh, plague is one of those where, um, I don't know, when you read this, maybe you look and you say, okay, frogs and lice, uh, more annoying than anything else, but there also are health concerns with it. And uh, especially when you start reading about where all the frogs went. And I know this is really blessing my wife right now because she hates frogs and uh, she'll have nightmares about all of this. Uh, just thank the Lord you're not an Egyptian. So let's uh, read this together now and, and think about these things. What is the Lord teaching us through this? Well, in order to understand what he's saying to us, we have to understand what he was saying to them. 
That's first principle of Bible study. Find out what the author meant when he wrote it. And when you understand that and what the first audience would understand, then you can make application. Don't ever start with what does this mean to you because that really doesn't matter just a whole lot. Okay? It's what does it say and what does it mean. Then the Holy Spirit makes application to our lives. So let's go back and let's think. Let's uh, pretend for a moment that you are one of these Israeli slaves. You've just been liberated from Egypt. You were in the wilderness. It's after the Red Sea. And Moses is your leader, and he has been writing all of these things down because this is when Exodus was written, okay, after the fact. And let's just pretend you're hearing all of this for the first time. And you're hearing the behind-the-scenes stories. Now, you might say, well, didn't they already know that? No, remember, they were slaves. They weren't privy to what went on in Pharaoh's palace. They weren't privy to the conversations that went on. So they're hearing the back story for the first time of God's redemption. Let's begin at verse 8 and let's listen through their ears and look at this through their eyes as best we can. Verse 1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs. Now we've got to make an assumption that the river is no longer blood and it's now supporting life once again, okay? It's back to normal. And the frogs will be abundant, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. All of your cooking utensils, everything. You ever open up the drawer to get a fork out and frogs jump out. Open your oven to make biscuits and frogs jump out. Okay, get the picture? This is not pleasant. I don't know if they were big frogs or little frogs. Probably doesn't matter. They're everywhere, right? Now verse 4. And the frogs shall come up on you on your people, and on your servants. Can you imagine shaking off frogs? Verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams and over the rivers and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. Okay, here we go again. Verse 7, and the magicians, the sorcerers, did so with their enchantments, copycats, and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Now, this next verse is really important. Just so Pharaoh and the Egyptians don't get the idea that it was a coincidence, here's what he says. And Moses said to Pharaoh, accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you and for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and from your houses that they may remain in the river only. So Pharaoh said, tomorrow. 
Now see, that was done so that it can't just be said, well, it probably would have gone away anyway. They nailed it down to a time, tomorrow. So Moses does that. And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Well, then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. This is particularly gross. They gathered them together in heaps. And the land stank. Can you imagine? But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief. He hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. See same song. Second verse, right? So what does the Lord do? Verse 16, so the Lord said to Moses, and this time there's no warning to Pharaoh. Judgment doesn't always have a warning. Many times it does, but not always. God's not obligated. So the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land. Sounds familiar. I'm having trouble breathing this morning, are you? So that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Thank you, Lord, that this Sahara dust doesn't do that, right? Verse 17. And they did so, for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians, here we go again, worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice. But they could not. So there were lice on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is above my pay grade. Is that a good translation? Well, literally they said, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard. And he did not heed them just as the Lord had said. You get the picture? So this is something that is annoying. This is something that is distressing. This is something that will rob you of sleep. This is something, these two plagues are the kind of thing that you just can't get away from or get, well, the scripture used the word relief. Always, frogs. Everywhere, jumping and croaking and everything you do, you're running into frogs. Every drawer you open, frogs jump out everywhere you go. I mean, how do you ever get away from that? How do you ever relax? And then about the time there's relief from the frogs, what happens? Lice, as my version says, some versions say gnats, we'll talk about that. They become numerous like dust floating around in the air. And dust in a dry, desert, arid land like Egypt would be very, very plentiful. And now they've got another problem. And they're covering man and beast. I mean, can you imagine hearing the cattle? 
Can you imagine hearing dogs and cats and any other animals? I don't know what camels do, but can you imagine all of them as they are moaning and groaning and you hear your own children and you hear your, your spouse and you yourself, you can't keep quiet because, well, they're all over you and they are everywhere and you can't get rid of them and you can't find any way to get any relief on all of this. And it's the Lord as the magicians say, this is the finger of God. Sometimes the Bible talks about the hand of God. This is just the finger of God. This is just the beginning of it. This is just more annoying than it is anything else. And yet what happens in all of this, hearts simply grow harder and more rebellious unto the Lord. Lies are told. You get rid of this stuff and I'll let the people go. But of course he doesn't do that. And uh, it, it's just a very, very interesting. And it's got to be a bewildering and confusing time. Because most of the Egyptians probably have no idea what in the world is going on. The Hebrews being in slavery, they didn't give it a second thought. They probably figured they were happy that way. They, you know, that's just what they were made for, and that's why they were here. It was just so normal. Nobody really thought about injustice or oppression or anything like that. They're just living their lives. Now they're starting to probably ask the question, what in the world is going on? Whether they knew or not, you can imagine people saying, what in the world is happening? Well, that's something that we need to look at all of this too. And without just going through this and going line by line and all of that, let me give you four observations that I made out of this text that I think uh, are applicable to us just as they were back then. And there are some things that maybe some of them we don't think about as often as we should. Here's the first one. Many times... God's people suffer along with the unrighteous. Did you know that? You know, as I read these plagues, I remember thinking way back because of what I'd learned in Sunday school, well, these things didn't affect the people of God. Hang on. Not so fast. The separation between the Israelis and the Egyptians has not happened yet. In other words, until you get on into the story, these first three plagues, the river turning into blood affected the slaves as well as the Egyptians. The uh, frogs affected the slaves as well as the Egyptians. And the lice affected the people of God just as it did the Egyptians. You say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, life isn't fair. In fact... Probably these slaves, if we were gathered with them hearing this story, if we raised that question, they would say, where have you been? Our suffering's been going on for 400 years. It didn't start with the river turning to blood. It didn't start with the frogs. It didn't start with the lice. It started 400 years ago. Where have you been? We've already been suffering. Our life has been one of suffering. This doesn't really change anything. You see, we need to think about something. For the Egyptians, it was the beginning of their suffering. But the truth is, for the Israelis, this was the end of theirs. And sometimes we forget in this life, the God that we serve causes it to rain on the just as well as the unjust. The righteous as well as the unrighteous. 
Now, that's a benefit. In the Bible, rain is always a good thing, right? Brings crops and money and all of that. It's a good thing. And the same thing is true in our day. When some ungodly person who is running a government or running businesses or whatever, when they prosper, hey, it makes my retirement account go up, doesn't it yours? We get the blessings. When there are plentiful jobs, we get the blessings of all of that. When we're blessed and there's plenty of food, we get fat and sassy along with all of the lost people. That's the way it works. But it's also true conversely. Sometimes when God begins to judge a nation, it spills over on his own people. There were Christians in the Soviet Union when it fell. There were Christians in Nazi Germany when they went to war and they were defeated. There were Christians, uh, missionaries had been in Japan long before World War II. There were Christians that suffered in the bombings of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We've got to remember we suffer. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But we've got to keep it in perspective because like the Israeli slaves, this was going to be the end of their suffering in Egypt. It was just the beginning of what was happening to the Egyptians. As we look in this world around us, why is all of this stuff happening? Why is God allowing this to happen? Why are we suffering in the midst of all of this? Well, just remember this. It's about to end for you. You've got an eternity. When this life is over, you've got an eternity with no suffering. But for this lost world, it's only beginning. Let that sink in. The psalmist would say, Selah, think about that. You're as close to hell, child of God, as you're ever going to get. But for the unrepentant lost person, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. Have some compassion. Have some compassion. And suffer alongside of them. And as you suffer alongside of them under the same burdens and problems and struggles of everyday life, you do it with a smile and do it with the joy of the Lord and witness for Jesus in it because you've got a better day coming and they do not unless they repent. Can you say amen to that? I hope you believe that. Okay, that's number one. Secondly, notice... As uh, we think about this story and everything that is happening, notice here that God is specifically judging that which violates or hinders true worship. Isn't that interesting? Because when God is judging a nation, see, nations don't go to heaven and nations don't go to hell. They're judged in this life, in this, this world. That's why there's the rise and the fall of empires and things like that. And so as God judges this nation, notice how he judges them on the basis. I mean, there was plenty of immorality. There was plenty of sin that he could have picked out. But then again, that would have been true among the Israeli slaves, wouldn't it? Because the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there was a difference here with the Egyptians. Remember, we talked two weeks ago how they worshipped the god Hapi, H-A-P-I. That was the god of the Nile, the god who controlled the weather, the god who caused the Nile to flood and fertilize and irrigate fields and all of that. Remember, they worshipped the Nile. What did God do? He turned their source of life into a source of death, turning it into blood. Well, now he brings the frogs out. Did you know that the Egyptians, one of the ways that they thought their worldview was this, when the Nile gods and the gods of the river, and the God, they had a lot of gods, whenever they are ready for us to plant 
and cultivate the fields, you know how we'll know it's time? Frogs will start to croak. And when they would hear the frogs starting to croak along the river, they took that as a sign. The gods have blessed us with fertility. The gods have blessed us with uh, crops and fields. And now we've got to go out and work those, cultivate those fields. It's time. And they would give thanks to the Nile. And they would give thanks to Hopi. And they would give thanks to those frogs. They even wore necklaces with frogs on them. Because the frog was a symbol of good fortune and blessing from the gods. So what does Yahweh do? He says, oh, you think frogs are such a blessing? Enjoy them. And here they come. You know, the book of Numbers says that God was judging the gods of Egypt. That's what all these plagues are about. All of the false worship of creatures rather than the creator. God is judging all of that. And he'll do that in your life too. You make an idol out of something, God will have something to say about it. If a nation chooses to worship something other than God, God will have something to say about it. And so he begins to work on all of this. And this is what is happening. And so these frogs are coming everywhere. And no longer are they seen as good fortune. No longer are they seen as a blessing. No longer is the croaking of the frogs seen as something that is beneficial. They're everywhere. And then even when they die, they die in place. You've got frogs dying on your bed, dying in your ovens, dying in your kneading bowls. They're dying in your courtyard. They're dying in the fields. They're dying in the streets. And you can imagine as the sun comes out on all those dead frogs, they pile up those carcasses. Perhaps they burn them, I don't know, but can you imagine the smell? This is what God is doing. He is judging them because they are not worshiping the true and the living God. Well, what about the dust turning into the lice? Well, you know, the Bible says that dust is an interesting thing because... What was Adam made from, the first man? The dust of the earth. Isn't that interesting? And you know, when um, Adam chose to sin against God, in Genesis chapter 3, as a part of the curse, God says, Cursed is the ground, that's where the dust is, because of you, in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground. Now listen to this, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's interesting, God uses something that is cursed. To smite the Egyptians. Why would he do that? Why would he do that? You see the lice. Uh, as my translation says. Some other translations say gnats. Uh, this is from uh, John MacArthur. So blame him if it's wrong. It says the Hebrew term is preferably taken. You ready? To designate tiny stinging insects. Barely visible to the naked eye. I could see why King James would translate that lice. They hurt, they sting, you can barely see them, and they are everywhere like clouds of dust on man and on beast. 
Now, the Egyptians, in order to understand this, they were a very, very, very clean people. In fact, the priests of the Egyptians would bathe sometimes several times a day, but they did something else. Have you ever noticed that the Egyptians, a lot of times their heads were clean-shaven? Well, the priests of Egypt would shave from head to toe. Nobody here whatsoever because that was a sign of cleanliness. They didn't have to worry about head lice or anything like that. They didn't have any hair. And they considered themselves clean and they were ready to go do the religious rituals at their various temples. You know what that's called? Self-righteousness. I am clean because I've shaved. I'm clean because I've bathed. I'm clean because of the rituals I've gone through. And God says, oh yeah? And he turns the dust to lice. And they cover all of those. And even their own priests were unfit to go into their temple. They were defiled because of that. And this is God's judgment against false worship and self-righteousness. I don't suppose we have any trouble with that today, do we? And yet God's feelings about false worship and self-righteousness are exactly the same. And if you don't believe me, read what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees who thought themselves clean and everyone else to be dirty. He hates the sin of self-righteousness. And so that's what's happening here. God is judging these false claims of worship and these false religions and this uh, false sense of cleansing and all of that by defiling all of them. Well, you can kind of see where this is going, can't you? Number three, knowing that relief is not the same thing as repentance. Pharaoh says, entreat the Lord your God. Finally, he's acknowledging that God has some power in all of this. And he says, uh, you go and ask him to take this away, and I will let the people go when that happens. You don't really have much ground to negotiate, Pharaoh. You don't really have any leverage in all of this. But he's still acting like it. You can see the pride and the arrogance of his heart as though he has something to say. You go it's commanding, tell your God to stop all of this, and then if he acts properly, then I will let the people go. You know, I've noticed we're not a whole lot different than that. There are a lot of people that when you hear them say, oh, God is so good, what they really mean is God's doing what I want him to do when I want him to do it the way I want him to do it. They don't say that when things are not going right. And here Pharaoh is kind of acting in that same sort of arrogance. You go tell him to do that. And Moses sort of calls his hand. There's a story by Mark Twain, a, 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 a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. And uh, this guy goes back into time. He's from Connecticut. He goes back into King Arthur's day. And he's in some trouble. And he happens to remember... That this is the day that there's going to be a, uh, a, a solar um, eclipse. And the people there don't know that back in King Arthur's day. What do they know? But he knows it. And so he comes up and right at the right moment he waves his hands and commands the sun to disappear. And it does. And all the people are just astonished. And uh, he gets out of trouble. They think he's some kind of a, a sorcerer or a wizard or something like that. Truth of the matter is that was going to happen whether he did anything or not. He just took advantage of it. Now, if this interaction between Moses and Pharaoh where Moses says, Tell me when you want me to do this. 
Will you do the honor of telling me when I'm supposed to pray this? And Pharaoh goes, okay, do it tomorrow. That just took all chance of this being a coincidence out of the picture. It's not a trick. It's not any. This is the work of God as Moses prays for this. And the frogs are gone and all of that. But what does Pharaoh do? He gets relief and he thinks, you know, like a lot of us do, if I can have relief, then I'll really serve God. No, that's not going to happen because relief is not the same thing as repentance. Oh, God, if you will heal my mom, I'll serve you forever. I've heard prayers like that. Oh, God, if you would just do something. Oh, preacher, I promise we'll be in church. I could name you some names of some people that prayed things like that, made promises like that that are not in church anywhere today because all they wanted was relief they really weren't interested in getting right with God all they wanted was just the pressure to be off and as soon as the pressure was off they forgot about everything they had said just like Pharaoh relief and repentance are not necessarily the same things but I do want you to notice the last thing boy this blessed me when the sorcerers come up and they are going to uh, do this, uh, do their works, their magic, they thought it would be like before. Except as we observed two weeks ago when we looked at the Nile turning to blood, the sorcerers could take water and turn it into blood. Well, whoop-de-doo, that's the last thing we need is more blood. They're not solving anything. They're making the problem worse. And look what they do with the frogs. Hey, they can make frogs too. Isn't that something? Look what we can do. That's the last thing we need are more frogs. But then when it comes to the dust, they can't do anything. And this is going to be basically the last we hear from these clowns. And you know what the last word they say is? This is the finger of God. We give. We give. You know what that reminds me of? Because the last point is the sorcerer's final confession. Note that term, final. We made reference to it when we sang earlier. In Philippians 2, it says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess. What? That Jesus is Lord. But the Bible says in the book of Revelation, there's coming a day, the great and terrible day of the Lord, it's called in some parts of Scripture. What would make a day like that great when he calls all of the living and dead that are lost before him to be judged and then to be cast in the lake of fire? What would, be, what would determine whether that's great or terrible? I can tell you this, which side you're on. If you're standing behind Jesus, it's going to be awesome watching people that have hated him, fought against him, maligned him, blasphemed him, and their last words before they're cast into the lake of fire. He is Lord. Yeah. Great if you're on that one side. Terrible if you're on the other. Isn't that right? Great and terrible at the same time. Isn't it interesting that the last words of the magicians are, this is the finger of God, and they have nothing else to say. At the very end, the last words, they're going to be saying, this is the finger of God, or 
Jesus is Lord, in other words. Having to confess who he is and what he has done. And I just want to say, whether you're watching by live stream, you're going to say that one day, one way or another. For all of you who are here, you're going to say that one way or another. And it's either going to be a great day or it's going to be a terrible day, depending on which side that you're on. You say, well, how can I make sure that I am on the Lord's side? Well, let me ask you this. Are you aware of your sin? Or do you excuse your sin? Do you grieve over your sin? Are you bothered by your sin? Do you understand your sin separates you from God? Do you understand your sin will send you to hell for eternity? Say, yeah, I do. Question number two. How are you going to get out? And you say, well, I'm going to try harder and I'm going to do better. That's bad answer. Bad answer. You see, the Bible tells us not only have all sinned come short of the glory of God, but the wages of sin is death. And no matter what we try to do, I mean, you can do like the Egyptian priest and shave yourself bald and go bathe in the Nile River several times a day, and you're still going to end up on the wrong side, and you're going to have to confess, like the magicians did, that he's Lord. This is the hand of God. But the Bible tells us that God, out of his great love for sinners like you, and like me, sent his son to do the work that only he could do. He died on the cross, and God the Father took all of the terrible, horrible, unending wrath that he has toward your sin and mine, and he put it upon Jesus Christ, and the infinite Son of God, as a man hanging on the cross, bore the judgment of God in the place of every person who would believe. Somebody say amen to that. Then he died. He said, it is finished. And then he was put in a tomb, and he arose three days later, and then was exalted to the right hand of God the Father, and he is Lord of all. And you're either going to acknowledge and submit to it now, or you will then, but you will do it. It will be done. And so I want to encourage you, if you've never trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, quit doing all your religious works. Quit trying to figure it out. Quit trying to make yourself better. And come to the cross of Jesus and see a Savior bleeding and dying for your sins, suffering the judgment of God in your place. And listen as he says, Tetelestai, it's finished, the debt is paid. And realize that's the Savior that rose from the dead. That's the Savior that is the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the Savior that the Father has committed all judgment into his hands. And you can embrace him as Savior and Lord, or you can face him as judge later on in that great and terrible day of the Lord. But if you'll trust him, he'll cleanse you. He'll cleanse your record, and he'll put the righteousness of Jesus on your record book. And you'll have a relationship with him because you will be a part of his family. It's called the new birth. And Jesus said you must be, not you should be, you must be born again. And so I just say to you today, I hope you've come to the place to where you understand that in order to be in heaven, you must be saved. And I hope that the Spirit of God is moving you to the place to where you are saying, I will be saved. And that you will trust him and bow before him today. You can talk to 
virtually any person that's here. I'll be happy to help you. Our staff will be able to help you. Uh, we, we love you and we care about you and we want to answer those questions. But you're going to have a final word. Remember that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Is that your final answer? Everyone will have a final answer. And everyone will have the final answer of the sorcerers. He is Lord. This is the finger of God. There's nothing we can do. We are helpless. We are helpless and hopeless before Him. And my prayer is that you will surrender to Him as Lord and as your Savior even now. Cry out to the Lord. Ask Him to save you. Go to the Word of God and look and see what it says. And put your full trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. And if you've done that, would you just say amen good and loud? Amen. If you haven't, talk to one of those people and they'll be happy to tell you how to trust Christ. It's more than walking an aisle. It's more than repeating a prayer. It's more than all of those kind of things. It's not a feeling or anything. It is trust in what he has said. So think about what we have talked about this morning. That the righteous suffer with the unrighteous temporarily. Temporarily. That God judges anything that hinders true worship. And he'll do it in your life, in my life, in the life of a nation. That relief is not the same thing as repentance. And that the sorcerer's final answer, they finally got it right, but I don't think in a saving way. But you can, by the grace and by the mercy of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, as we close this service, we do pray for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. And not just from hearing this sermon... But for those of us who just said amen, we have a responsibility to share the gospel with every creature. I pray we would do that. Bless us tonight as we gather to minister to our law enforcement and first responders. Oh, they need encouragement and we need to support them. But we pray that as much as we want them to know our love and support, we pray for their salvation. And we pray, Lord, that our church would have an ongoing outward witness to our community, and to the nations of the world as well. And we pray all of this because we believe this one thing to be true, not from observation, but from experience. Jesus is Lord. Amen and amen. Thank you so much. God bless you. Brother Dale.